his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. I got six strings, the story's worth telling, learn it all where the turrets meet. Now it's full steam ahead with these dreams in my head, making tracks where I stomp my feet. My feet are bare and my clothes out of way, I got you thinking that I ain't no wood. So sit right here, I'll show you my dear, you'll be wanting more when I'm done. Hop on board my train, pretty mama, and I'll show you that I ain't no square. I'm a Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J-Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. With any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. He's a native of Ontario, Canada, who obtained his Master's of Business Administration from the Ivy Business School. He enjoyed a successful career in corporate technology before transitioning into investing and education. He's traveled throughout Europe, North America, South America, and the South Pacific, both for business and pleasure. He's passionate about technology, the forces that drive it, and the impact it has on society. He's a big fan of science fiction and fantasy, as well as a master of escape room misdirection and trickeration. He's also been known to crash a Comic-Con whenever the opportunity presents. Please welcome a debut author who will keep you up late turning pages. Our tour guide for today's adventure, Drew Murray. Drew, thanks so much for setting aside the time. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. We really enjoyed your book, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about it. First of all, right out of the gate, congratulations. I know this is your debut, and I want to congratulate you on that. I know that's a big deal for authors. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, It takes a lot to get here, and it's it's just so thrilling uh, that the book is actually out and people are reading it, and I'm so happy that you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In looking at your bio, I also picked up you're a fan of science fiction and fantasy. And and we don't get to talk a lot with authors who write in those genres. I probably ought to research that a little bit deeper because I enjoy those genres as well. But I've always felt that those two were just one split zygote away from being kissing cousins, I guess. 
The best analogy I could probably put on our plate to illustrate what I'm thinking would be the world of Star Wars. One minute we're watching the Death Star light up Alderaan, and the next we're roaming through the ancient forest of Endor trying to figure out whether we should be afraid of the Ewoks or make plans to adopt one. Um, (laughs) What's your perspective on the two? Because I see them being a little bit different, but also being a whole lot of the same. What's your perspective? Um, There's a lot that they have in common, Um, all of these sorts of stories. You know, science fiction and fantasy, they take you away to a place. They take you to another world. And whether that's a world of science and space or if it's a world of, you know, forests and magic, it it allows you to dream in a way that you, you don't get to in your everyday life. Uh, and that's the thing that brings them together. Also, you know, there's similar themes that you'll see in science fiction and fantasy, like the quest is is strong in both genres. Right, yeah. Um, and and so, you know, there's a, a lot of things where they're similar, and there are some important differences between them. And it surprises me sometimes how there are people that they're fans of one or the other. And mm-hmm. and that surprises me. Uh, that, you know, your hardcore science fiction fans, they watch Star Trek, they watch Star Wars, you know, they, they read science fiction and they say, ooh, you know, magic? I don't know about magic. Uh, that really surprises me because the stories, you know, they, they have so many things in common and so many similarities. And people outside of the genres tend to look at them as just one thing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, fantasy land uh, is, is how they generally think of it. Um, but yeah, there's an important distinction there. Yeah, well, I mean, even Disney separated Fantasyland from Tomorrowland, but to me, sci-fi feels a little bit techy. Fantasy feels a little bit like a realm of magic. But as I said, in Star Wars, we got this mind-boggling aspect of cutting-edge technology. At the same time, there's this sense that maybe somewhere in the Pantheon, there's a city that feels an awful lot like Fred Flintstone's bedrock, and nobody wants to talk about that. Uh, it's true. And when you look at Star Wars, there are aspects of both fantasy and science fiction in Star Wars because it's space. It's spaceships flying around. That's your science fiction aspect to it. But then you also have a, a fantasy element when you talk about using the Force, when you talk about Jedi, when you talk about uh, the spiritual side of things and exploring those realms is very, very different. The other great thing about Star Wars is it relies on a used universe, is how George Lucas referred to it. This is a a, a galaxy that's very old. Things are worn out. Things are used. Things aren't brand spanking new and shiny like you see quite frequently in other science fiction, like Star Trek being the other prime example. And that gives Star Wars more of that fantastic element because there are ancient places in that world like you see commonly in fantasy. When you think of Lord of the Rings, they're constantly exploring ruins of places that existed hundreds of years before. And you see that in Star Wars as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I uh, That connection there is just, it's so strong at times. And it, I didn't realize it until I started watching back through the Flintstones with my grandkids. But the Flintstones had a lot of what we would think of as modern day technology. They had a TV, they had other things, you know, and yet they're living in the Stone Age. We'll swing back around to our sci-fi and fantasy discussion a little bit later, but you just released your debut novel, and I want to dig into it. It's called Broken Genius, and it traffics in the realm of reality with a pinch 
a futuristic projection that opens the door to what I would call techno magic. Drew, I've heard of the terms quantum mechanics and quantum computing. Both ideas have this power to bring a channel surfing hop around to a screeching halt for me. I, I know this thread weaves through the fabric of broken genius. Crack open that door for us and give us a peek behind the curtain. Quantum computing is the next great evolution of computing. It is uh, going to change everything as we know it. Um, you know, current computers are binary. Uh, they calculate things in a, with an on or off switch, a yes and no. And so they're limited in that when computers today perform calculations, they do it in a linear fashion. Mm -hmm. They calculate one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. They do it incredibly quickly because of the size and scope of of the processors that we've designed to do that. I mean, a computer is basically just a calculator at the end of the day, uh, but they're really, really powerful calculators. But there's a theoretical limit to how quickly they can possibly go uh, when they have to calculate things in a linear fashion. When you jump over into quantum uh, mechanics, which drives quantum computers, you're not binary anymore. There's an on state and an off state and an on and off state at the same time. So your ability to make calculations um, expands greatly because they don't have to happen in a linear fashion. Um, it's a it's a tough concept to you know, wrap people's heads around, but what it does is, in essence, is open all possibilities at the same time, which allows computers to then do things that are are so far beyond what they're capable of doing today. Um, and uh, quantum computers, you talk about how this technology in broken genius is just around the corner. It really is just around the corner. There are quantum computers today, but they're the size of, you know, uh, large refrigerators and they have to be super cooled. And there are all these physical requirements to make them work. Right. Um, but there are some in it that, that exist today in an experimental sense, uh, but they're nowhere near being able to be used in any practical way. So when I, I thought about that technology as uh, something that's just around the corner for broken genius, I said, well, what if it is just about there. What if we're on that edge of being able to use this technology now in a practical way? What would that enable? Mm -hmm. And when we think about what it's capable of doing, who then would really have a deep stake in obtaining and controlling that technology? And that drives the the essence of the book. That drives all the competition and, and the uh, plot of the book. I guess we all kind of have that anchor that has the sign posted on it that you know, just says no way where someone says, ah, we can do this. We can do that. But there's, you know, there's that sense of no way we can't do that. But I live in the state of Florida. Years ago, I toured the Kennedy Space Center and it's one of my favorite places to visit, folks. If you come here for Walt Disney World, God love you. Have a great time. But if you don't tour the Kennedy Space Center, you're really missing a pretty well-guarded secret that's just an awful lot of fun and really opens up your eyes to a lot of things. They had rooms full of computers to, to guide those initial launches. We carry around something in our hands every day at this point that's much more powerful than what they were using back then. Absolutely. Or on your wrist, even. Yeah. It's, it's actually kind of amazing to, to look back and see how far we've come. I, I had the opportunity to go to the Smithsonian uh, Institute, the Air and Space Museum, and to look at the Apollo capsules. And, and you have in your mind an idea of what a spaceship is, especially if you've been watching Star Trek and Star Wars and, and science fiction. But then to see 
where we started with an actual spaceship and it's it's the size of a Honda Civic and mm-hmm. it doesn't look much more complicated than that. <laughs> Uh, it's incredible what we've accomplished in really what is just a, the blink of an eye in terms of human civilization. Uh, so it's thrilling to, I, I love the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it's a great place to visit. And it's thrilling to look at that and say, what have we done in this amount of time? Uh, and what's coming in the future? And it's so exciting to see that we are, uh, exploring space again, that we've got these missions to Mars where we're going to fly a helicopter on the planet for the first time, where we've got the uh, SpaceX Dragon capsule that's now you know, flying astronauts into space uh, at a commercial level. But it looks so much more futuristic, and it's so great that we have leaders that really are looking towards what are we capable of? What can we do? Let's dream a little bit, and let's be aspirational as a as a civilization. Yeah, it feels like we're finally catching up with Da Vinci, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, folks, but in in all honesty, as our learning curve grows, our time and essence that it takes us to move forward shrinks. One last quick question, and then I want to dig into character, because that's what books are all about in the first place, is character. When we talk quantum computing, are we talking about something that takes time and space and is able to manipulate those things? Or is that still outside the realm of what we're attempting to develop? That's an interesting question. Um, A quantum computer manipulates time and space, but only within uh, the processor itself. Okay, Um, It's not something that has an impact on the outside world. But there is this little minor miracle going on uh, inside a quantum computer that's examining these multiple states that materials can exist in. And and so it manipulates time and space sort of in the center of the computer, but it's not something that's going to you know create warp fields or anything like that acting externally on the outside world. Okay, so we're not about to crack open a new remake of The Fly just yet. I mean, I realize that's a short story from the 50s, which, which I think was originally published in Playboy. And yeah, there was a time that people actually subscribed to the magazine for the stories. But that movie... And turned into a movie that... Uh, Jeff Goldblum did. Yeah, Brad Bellflower uh, himself. Remake. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it, one of his most underrated performances. It was brilliant. It is a brilliant movie. Let's talk character. At the heart of this story, we meet Will Parker. He's a young prodigy CEO of a big tech company that makes a coding mistake that costs a college student her life. Introduce us to Will. Absolutely. Um his his whole life blows apart in the first chapter of the book. We meet Will uh, sort of at the lowest point of his entire life, um, but he doesn't know it as we're we're opening the cover. Um, he is the CEO of a, a tech company in Silicon Valley. He's young. He's a prodigy. He's successful. He's talented. Uh, he's uh, a brilliant guy, and he knows it. Um, and he's quite confident as a result of that. And that confidence gets brutally, brutally torn apart in that first chapter because he's on the cusp of buying uh, a company that makes a quantum computer. He's looking forward to becoming a household name like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Um, And at the same time, the FBI has come to him with a problem. They have uh, a serial killer that they know is operating. They know what, what he's doing. They know that he's kidnapped someone and they expect that he's going to murder this person. And this serial killer has been using a piece of technology that Will's current company has created. And so they come to him saying, can you help us find the serial killer? Um, but he's so consumed with this big deal that he's got going on 
that he rushes through it and he makes a mistake in the coding. And unfortunately, that gives the serial killer an opportunity to finish what he's doing with this young woman that's been kidnapped. And unfortunately, she dies. And this is a mistake that Will can't escape. He can't brush off. He can't say, oh, it was this circumstance, that circumstance. Let's just move on. It's a, a mistake that he's made. He doesn't often make mistakes. At least that's what he thinks. Um, he actually makes mistakes all the time, but he, he just doesn't see them that way. But he sees this as a mistake that he's made that costs someone their life. And, and nothing he's done in his life has had such a direct impact on a person before. And it, it devastates him. Um, and he spends uh, the next year searching for this technology that went missing. And then he ends up working for the FBI because he just can't shake the guilt of what he's done. And so he figures, you know, what I can do is I can make amends for what I've done. Uh, I can find redemption by helping the FBI catch the, the next one and the one after that and the one after that. Uh, and that's where we pick up the story with Will when, after all this time, uh, radiation at a murder scene at a Comic-Con matches this quantum computer that's gone missing. And all of a sudden, his history collides with present day. And he is confronted with this this possibility to resolve uh, something that, that he's been searching for for a long period of time. And of course, you know, more lives are on the line and the stakes are much greater. And so that's the that's the mystery that he gets embroiled in. Now, I know that a Comic-Con is a playground that uh, that you really enjoy kind of working with because of your love and appreciation for them and also your familiarity with them. I am curious about Will, though, to move him from founder and CEO of a major tech company that's kind of on the cutting edge and then position him as a specially trained FBI agent with a distinctive set of skills, so to speak. Thank you, Liam Neeson, for that. Um, (laughs) Does he walk completely away from the old company or are there still some connections there? Um, he has on the surface walked away from it and he's not involved in sort of the day-to-day operations. He's not involved in the business aspect of it anymore. Uh, but he still owns, uh, a large portion of the company. It's still his, uh, baby, so to speak. He's just not able to reconcile working with that company right now in his own mind and in his own heart. Uh, but he's definitely still involved in technology. Uh, you know, the people that work in Silicon Valley had a, a great opportunity to go out and spend time with folks that work in the tech industry out there. My friend was living there at the time. And it's built into the people that work in tech. It is uh, part of their dreams of, of bringing these things uh, to market, bringing these things into the world. Uh, that isn't something that you can just walk away from and, and completely wash your hands of it. It's built into him. He was raised in Silicon Valley. He still has a connection to, to technology that he leverages now for the FBI. Yeah. Um, so he's he's got this particular set of skills, like you say, and he brings them uh, to bear with the FBI. Uh, I know that there are brilliantly talented people that work at the FBI. I had an opportunity to uh, visit the New York field office of the FBI uh, several years ago as part of Thriller Fest which was a great experience, learned a lot about the people that work at the FBI, but they don't have access to uh, the kind of brilliant genius that Will sees himself as that works in Silicon Valley, that you know becomes an, a billionaire or an almost billionaire in Will's case, um, that, that are capable of envisioning these amazing things and making them happen and have 
you know, a relationship with technology that is different from most everybody else outside of the Valley. I just think that was a fascinating backdrop and foundation for this particular character. As you brought up Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, it's hard to see them transitioning into that FBI kind of a mold. But in this case, the character does. And it's not so far-fetched as you see the whys and what's behind it that drives him in that direction. You mentioned that there's I believe you said a radioactive signature that's picked up at the Comic-Con that puts this on Will's radar that that's where he needs to be. At the Comic-Con, of course, he's working with local law enforcement, and he meets a homicide detective named Dana Lopez. This case seems like it could become very dicey, very specific in nature. Is she qualified for what's ahead in the grand scheme of things, or is she about to get on board a ride that she's just not ready for? That's a question that Will himself asks right when he meets her at the beginning. And he is, I've heard him referred to as a a lovable a-hole, and that's his attitude. He's, He's really arrogant, he's really cocky, he's really believed in his own abilities very deeply, but he's always trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And if if the path success is working with someone locally, then he's going to do that. It's just that in his judgment, you know, so infrequently are they capable of, of doing the things that I would need them to do to work collaboratively. But he gets a, a sense of real competence from Dana right away. And he he really respects the, the way that she interacts with technology, too, which is um, something unique to those of us that have worked in technology for a long period of time. We have a tendency to get asked questions about how technology works um, by people who are non-technical. And technology is really complicated. There are a lot of different aspects to it. Um, People like to jump to conclusions when it comes to technology. And in a case like this, where technology is wrapped up so deeply in everybody's motivations, the people who are here, what it is, the details are really, really important. And when she doesn't gloss over the details and leap to conclusions, that's when Will kind of looks at her and says, hey, You are the kind of person that is analytical, that is thoughtful, uh, that is going to be able to consume the information that I give you that you're going to need to help me solve this case. So let's see where this goes. And he has a lot of respect for her almost right out of the gate, uh, which makes for a great collaboration between them. She also serves a purpose in a storytelling fashion that she's learning about the technology. She's unfamiliar with it, as would be many readers. And so she, as a representative of the reader, and learning about this technology as the case starts to unfold and why it's important. And folks, he's talking about me when he says those that aren't familiar with technology. We're talking via Skype, and the first words after hello were, I haven't used Skype in years. Yeah, I'm a little bit behind the curve, and maybe I'll get a link as to where I should be at some point in time in the future. Drew, we've got two things going on here. We've got a death at the Comic-Con. There is actually a killer. And then we've got this question of quantum computer. And and I'm just curious, are we chasing the Comic-Con killer? Or are we chasing what happens with the quantum computer? Or maybe we're chasing both. We're chasing one to get to the other. I think the assumption is that once we find who the Comic-Con killer is, that will lead us to where the technology is. 
characters and character development. We're going to dig into both a little bit deeper on the other side of this break. We've been talking a lot of technology. We're going to talk a lot of character on the other side. Drew Murray is our guest today. We're talking about his debut thriller, Broken Genius. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. This is Reese Hirsch, the author of Dark Tomorrow, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash PDI and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash PDI. Your support moves that needle. We're at the midpoint of this week's adventure and there's more great conversation just ahead. But I want to take just a moment to thank those of you who are podcast subscribers and those of you who help to support the show through our Patreon page. We love bringing these conversations your way each week, but there is a physical cost involved in producing the adventures. We're going to have to replace some of the outdated computer equipment in our recording studio by the end of the year. And without the support that we get from our podcast listening family, doing things like that just wouldn't be possible. So if you really enjoy the podcast, we appreciate your support through Patreon slash PDI. There's a link to it on the host page for each adventure. Another great way you can show your support for the show is by using the links to Amazon found throughout the Public Display of Imagination website. Whenever you use one of our links to go to the Amazon site, we get a small percentage of override on your purchase, whatever it might be. So if you clicked on a book title but ended up purchasing a build-your-own Star Wars droid kit for the grandkids, wink wink, or a new decorative planter for your reading room, well, your purchase just helped the show because you used one of our links to get to the Amazon site. So if you're going to Amazon, please let us be your doorway. The Sendable Social Media Management Tool is another great way you can support the show. If you're an author, a publicist, a publisher, or anyone who uses social media to help promote your business, I promise you, you won't find a more useful application anywhere. Like Amazon, we've got links to Sendable on almost every page of the website. Click on the Sendable image and take a free 14-day test drive on us. We've been using Sendable for over a year, and I couldn't recommend it more highly. One last thing. Don't forget to check out the host page for this adventure. I realize you're probably listening to the podcast via iTunes, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Deezer, or one of a host of other podcast listening platforms, and we hope you'll give us a rating and a review while you're listening. But the adventure host pages on the Public Display of Imagination website are where you will find links to the authors, their books, and their social media pages. You'll also see links to the Inside the Writers workshop segment with today's guest. 
We just uploaded it to our public display of Imagination YouTube channel, and it's waiting there just for you. You can watch it from the host page, or you can watch it from YouTube. It's one of my favorite segments, and we're excited to bring these extended author interview segments your way via our YouTube channel. So I hope you'll check out Public Display of Imagination on YouTube and explore all of our fantastic Inside the Writer's Workshop conversations. Now, let's get back to this week's PDI adventure. This is Leslie Lutz, author of Fractured Tide, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I used to dream that I was a king and I could fly far away. All right, we're back. My guest, Drew Murray, we're talking about his debut thriller, Broken Genius. Drew, I know that for every author, they have to have an online presence. You are ahead of the curve by comparison to most when it comes to technology. I'm also going to assume that you may be a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to where you want to be social media wise and how you want to use it. But tell us, if someone wanted to follow your work a little bit more closely, maybe see what's coming down the pipeline, where can they find you online? And if they wanted to reach out and maybe ask you a question about something that they read in your work, what's the best way for them to do it? Sure. I am everywhere online. Um, I am happy to meet people where they want to be. Uh, So you can find me on my website at drewmurraybooks.com. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at Drew Murray Books. So Instagram is that a is that a leader for you? If you Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, which one's the leader? Uh, I would say I'm most active on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Okay, okay, just curious, just curious. I had a author just a couple of weeks ago tell me that yeah, if you want to follow me, Instagram's the place to be, and I'm like. You're the first author that's told me that. Every other author says, yeah, I have an Instagram page. I don't know how it works. And that's kind of where I am as well. In our open, we touched on a brief contrast comparison of sci-fi and fantasy. When writing speculative fiction, the question of possibility versus plausibility always comes up. But when the door is open to science fiction and fantasy... The constraints of possibility can take a back seat at times to imagination. H.G. Wells gave us War of the Worlds in 1897. We were still imagining at that time what it would be like to even fly. When working with speculative technology, is it important to anchor it somewhere in what the readers already know and understand? Or can you just kick the can way out in front of you somewhere and maybe drop some popcorn trails for them to follow? Well, how far you kick that can, it really depends on what genre you're working in. And as Broken Genius is a techno thriller, it has to be rooted in things that people understand uh, about our contemporary technology today. Uh, So you can be a little bit ahead of the curve. You can be, you know, maybe one kick of the can down the road. But if you get too far away, you're losing... Um, the interest or the connection with the reader that typically reads thrillers, and you're more looking for a science fiction reader at that point. 
So it comes down to an issue of book branding, too, um, and reaching the readers that you're looking for. So with a thriller, it really does need to be rooted in something people can easily understand. How thin is the veil between techno-thriller versus sci-fi? Is there a gap there, or is it closer than we might think? It's pretty distinct. Um, I read quite a bit of science fiction, and uh, I read uh, thrillers, obviously, uh, quite a number of those as well. It's pretty clearly defined at this point. Um, you can have crossover, so you can have elements of thrillers in uh, a science fiction book. Absolutely, that happens all the time. And you can have some of these fantastical elements, one or two, in a thriller like my book, Broken Genius. But really, there's a dividing line between those and how they're marketed and who they're marketed to and where you find them in the store. Uh, a bookstore even is totally different. So yeah, yeah. Um, books that are really successful have elements of multiple genres in them, but they stay pretty clearly defined. Yeah. And that's interesting because when I think of sci-fi, I, I, I'm not going to lump fantasy in with this one because so many times that's a an ever-developing epic. But when I think of sci-fi, there's also this element that there's little pockets that we would call a thriller short story built in, that it builds. There's something that we've got to address, and then there's another crisis around that corner and another crisis around the next. And that's why I wanted to know how closely the two could be equated versus how big the gap was between the two. Well, if you look at Philip K. Dick and you look at the movies that were based on his short stories like Blade Runner, that's noir. That's a noir detective story. Right. Um, but it's des- definitely also science fiction. Yeah. Um, and so those those elements come together, but nobody would ever look at, at Blade Runner and say it's a noir thriller first. It's always going to be science fiction first because of those fantastical elements to it. You've yeah. got flying cars and you've got replicants. and And this is just beyond the realm of, what people are willing to believe is possible today, but they're willing to believe these things are possible when you set it in a science fiction perspective. People are much more willing to engage in imagination uh, when you look at those stories in that genre. That's an excellent illustration uh, with that. It, it really kind of pulls me back to one of the other differences that I see is that when you're dealing with that genre, whether it be science fiction or fantasy, you're really more in line of making the characters have less flaws, less limitations in some aspect, because you can elevate them up and above. But every Superman has to have his kryptonite, and, you know, every Superman needs a Lois Lane. Skill and ability versus flaws and limitations. In a thriller, the author has to present both. Your lead character will has some upper-edge, cutting-edge skill and ability, but as you pointed out, he also has some very clear flaws and limitations. Definitely. He has enormous blinders on. Uh, He is so confident in his abilities that when he makes mistakes, he he doesn't even acknowledge them as mistakes. It's just something that happened, and don't worry, I'll fix it. Right. Um, And he's always believing that whatever happens, he'll be able to deal with it. He'll be able to adapt. He'll be able to solve the problem. And that's what makes the events that start off the novel uh, when Kate Mason gets killed. Um, that is something that he can't explain away, that he can't adapt to, that he can't change, that he can't fix later. And that exposes for him his own character flaws and is something that he has to get over. And he's going to spend a very, very long time doing that. So that's an illustration or I guess that's an example 
of how his arrogance got in the way of his step-by-step methodical process. Definitely, definitely. It was his overconfidence and his distraction and not focusing on what he needed to focus on at the time. Wow. Um, and and that even happens throughout the entire book. He's got this commentary that he's presenting uh, because it is written first person. You're inside his head. Uh, he's looking at things that aren't always directly relevant to you know the mission at hand, uh, but it's where his mind goes and it's how his brain works. Uh, that he's collecting all these other random bits of information and details and and presenting his opinion on them too, which makes him a really interesting character to listen to. Yeah, I talked with Dana Haynes some time back, and and he told me, in fact, I met him at the last Thriller Fest that we were actually able to have, which was 2019. He told me that he cast his characters so that he kind of has some ground and sense of who they are or maybe the launching point, the foundation, the platform. When you were building Will, was there anyone, and I don't want to out anyone, but was there anyone that really came to mind for you as, okay, these are some of the traits that he's picking up and exhibiting? Was there anyone that kind of helped you form that based on what you had seen in their own actions and the way they approach things? Um, Will's really an amalgam of people that I met in Silicon Valley. And it's, I pulled aspects from, you know, a person here, a person there, and even some of the stories that my friend that was living there at the time was able to tell me. Uh, there's a, uh, an anecdote in there where Will talks about kind of parties that they have in Silicon Valley and how you get a guest list distributed before the party with a brief bio on, uh, the attendees who are going to be there. So you know who's worth talking to for you. Uh, and what you want to get out of that conversation. Wow. And that's such a weird world to inhabit. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Talk so, about a uh, public mixer of, you know, you've kind of got your, it almost sounds like you've got your baseball card checklist. I need to go hit these boxes and then I'm done for the evening. 100%. You go in with a plan to a party in Silicon Valley. It's it's kind of a crazy thing. And and the elaborate parties that they throw, it's it's this bizarre blend of, you know, fantasy and social and business all wrapped up into one and happening simultaneously. Wow. Samuel Johnson famously said the two most engaging powers of an author are to make new things familiar and familiar things new. Now, my wife usually cracks open the cover on a book before I get to it. And she loved this story, by the way, folks. She's read the complete X-Men catalog of comics and graphic novels, and she would feel quite at home on the showroom floor of a Comic-Con, but everything she knows about quantum physics, quantum computing, she learned from Sheldon Cooper. You have a good working knowledge in these fields. How important is it for the author to write so that their readers don't have to have the background knowledge of a technical subject matter to really follow and understand it? That's a good question. And it's, it's something that when you're writing about technology and as somebody who's worked in technology my whole life, it's a constant challenge to communicate technical things to a non-technical audience and discussions of technology get very complicated very quickly. Um, and so when writing the story, I really had to strike that perfect balance of giving the reader enough information about how something works, 
that they accept it as part of the story and move on. Because if they don't, then they're thinking, hey, is this a science fiction book? And that's not really for me. So they have to accept that technology and move on with it. So I have to understand the technology well enough that I can simplify it in a way that makes sense and is consumable for the reader that I'm trying to reach. And I had a, a, a 20 year career in corporate IT where um, that was a, a, something that I did constantly. Um, you know, when I worked for big corporations, banks, insurance companies, you were constantly having to explain what's possible, what's not possible, and what's just really possible but super expensive uh, to your business clients <laughs> that were part of the organization uh, that that didn't understand the technology behind things. So that's that sort of dynamic back and forth between the business and IT exists in basically every organization in the world um, that has a technology component to it. And so that is something that I was very experienced with going into the book. And so when I did my research on quantum computers, um, you know, I, there's so much that I learned about them along the way that's definitely not in the book because I could have filled an entire book just with that. Right. Um, so it was really important to just narrow it down to the things that would enable the story to move forward. That's interesting. The third option you gave there, what is possible, but really not practical from an economic sense. We can do it, but it's just not a good value for us to do it at this time. At the end of the day, our stories are about character and storyline, right? I mean, it all follows either a source character and his interaction with others or a problem and how the character who is backed up against the wall is going to resolve that issue. We met Dana Lopez in our first segment, and one might think of her as a bit of a secondary character or a what I would have at one time called a complementary character, but Brad Parks told me that there are no secondary characters. When did Dana emerge for you, and how did you see her working with Will as things kind of unfolded? Uh, I knew that I was going to have to have a local contact for Will to work with. Um, with the, the time that I spent with the FBI in the field office and learning how they work, the FBI doesn't just show up to the scene of a murder somewhere and start investigating it on their own. Uh, a murder isn't necessarily a federal issue. Um, it's a local issue. It's this connection to this technology that makes it something that the FBI would want to be involved with. But when there's a crime committed, there's always local law enforcement that uh, has a stake in that. So Dana is a homicide detective. Um, she needs to solve the murder. She's got the local issues at the fore for her. So safety of the people at the Comic-Con, safety of the community. Um, these are the things that, that I knew that there was going to have to be somebody that did that. But what I saw there was an opportunity to contrast against somebody like Will and say, what is a character that's going to work well with him, but be very different from him uh, as a tool to use to explore more of his character, explore more of her character, and hopefully get the reader um, really committed to outcomes for those two characters and, and their success, be invested in their success. You're working on the initial draft of this, and, and I've talked with authors who write primarily standalones, as well as authors who write primarily series books. Did, did you see this as a standalone or did you see this as a launch of a series? And folks, I don't know this answer going in, so I'm going to learn as you learn here. Breaking news on the Public Display of Imagination podcast. 
as you were writing Broken Genius, did you see it as a standalone or the launch of a series of books? I definitely saw it as series potential. Um, you know, as a debut author, you don't want to be presumptuous and say, oh, this is the start of my 10 book series. Yeah. Um, you, you don't know if it's going to turn out that way. Uh, but there's so much to Will uh, mm-hmm. that that there's there to explore and so many more different ways to do that. So I definitely saw him as the potential for a series. Um, initially, I, I conceived of Will for a short story competition that was about murder at a beach. And I thought, well, what kind of beach would it be? Everybody's going to pick like a tropical resort beach because why wouldn't you? But I just come back from Northern California and the, the beaches in Northern California are just stunning. They're beautiful. The Pacific coast is just gorgeous. And I thought, well, what kind of murder would happen here? And we're in Silicon Valley. It would have some connection to technology. And then who would investigate that kind of crime? And I, I came up with Will for that short story competition, but then quickly realized there was so much to him. There were so many different facets and fascinating things about him uh, that he just wasn't going to fit in a short story. So then when I started writing Broken Genius, I said, this is it. This is a novel format. This is perfect for him. I'll be able to explore all the aspects of his character. Not even close. There's so much more to <laughs> him to do, to look at. So I, I knew very quickly that this had the potential to be a series, at least in my mind. All right, then let's turn several hundred pages. You've gotten to know Will fairly well at this point. Let's look into his future as well as yours. He's had a long and successful run, but it's time for him to retire. Upon his retirement, he sends you a note inviting you to meet him at the 2053 Comic-Con in beautiful downtown Uleville, Florida, which is where I live, folks. And I promise you, it will be beautiful if they ever finish building it. Will wants to show you his surprise exhibit at the Comic-Con. What does Will have on display? You know what? It, it will be... Will is an eternal optimist, and he's always looking towards the future. So even in 2053 or whatever uh, it is, like way, way down the road, um, he's going to be looking at what's coming next. So it will be uh, something to do with some new technology um, and some new thing that it will do for us uh, that will make our lives better. It's impossible to say 50 years from now, 30 years from now, what that's going to be. But whatever it is, it's going to be new. It's going to be exciting. And it's going to be the sort of thing where you stop and go, oh, cool. That's what he's going to do. Drew Murray, ladies and gentlemen. Drew Murray, Broken Genius is his debut novel. And it's one that I think you'll really enjoy. You'll find a link to the book as well as his social media pages posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Drew, all the best with Broken Genius. We really enjoyed it. I wish you the best with it. Thank you so much for taking time for us today and joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. It was terrific. I really enjoyed talking with Drew about the storyline of Broken Genius and some of the real-life aspects of the technology involved. But the fun is only beginning, folks. In our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, we'll find out whether Broken Genius is a standalone novel or if there's more adventures ahead for Will Parker. We'll also find out about some of Drew's favorite reads and get some insider advice for escape room junkies. You'll find it all on the public display of Imagination 
YouTube channel. We call it our Inside the Writer's Workshop segment, and we do one with each author guest that you hear here on the podcast. You can listen to that portion of the conversation right from the host page for each adventure on the Public Display of Imagination website, and we hope you're intrigued enough at this point to join us there as we go behind the curtains with Drew Murray. Also, you'll see book summaries on the host page for this adventure and find hot links to Amazon for many of the books that we talked about over the course of our conversation. Thank you for subscribing and listening through whatever podcast listening platform you use to follow the show. Please don't forget to give us a rating and a review. And until next time, remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jabon Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.